This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode and a first ever cross promo. We're doing two shows in one. This is a this is an oil and gas startups meets Chuck Gates needs a job. It was really funny. I had a buddy that was in a band and uh, coming out of college named Toy Subs. And about three years later, they named they changed their name to something else. And I asked Jamie, the lead singer, I go, what happened? He goes, we've evolved as artists. We've become so much better and all that. Talked to the drummer. He went, yeah, we went to every record company as Toy Subs and they told us fuck off. So we uh, we had to change names. <laughs> so that may be what we're doing today on the on the cross strategic promotion. But welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast so as well. We've got Chris Atherton here, CEO of EnergyNet. Everybody knows you guys. Everybody uses you guys. Hey, thanks for having me today. But does anybody know the, does anybody know the story? I don't that's, know. That's what we're here to find yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Who is Chris Atherton? And what is the actual story behind EnergyNet? You guys have seen some shit. You've been doing this for 20 years now, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. No, it's, uh, it, it's been a wild ride. So I, uh, I was actually, uh, Chuck and I had lunch uh, earlier this week, and I was telling him uh, next month in October 2022, will be, I will be personally at tw- uh, 20 years at EnergyNet, which has pretty, been a pretty wild ride. Seen a lot, seen shale booms and bust and uh, all, all kinds of companies come and go and people come and go. Um, so, uh, my background a little bit, grew up in Houston, uh, grew up down in Clear Lake, went to Clear Lake high school. Um, uh, and then I, I worked at Enron out of, out of college that didn't, that career path didn't work out for me, blew up a little bit. And then, which uh, group at Enron, Enron, energy, Enron energy services. So okay. I was in, uh, 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 Pies group. Yeah. Lupai's group. Oh, yeah. wow. Uh, got, he likes the gasoline on his clothing. Um, but, um. Uh, so I worked there. That blew up. Uh, I joined EnergyNet in October of 2002 as a you know business development manager here. Uh, Bill Britton uh, started EnergyNet really as a um, a way to create liquidity in the oil and gas asset market. What's Bill's background? He is a West Point grad, uh, born and raised in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, 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 officer in the Army. Then he worked for a, a large uh, ranching family, an oil and gas family out in the Texas Panhandle. And then uh, started an uh, EMP company with his partner, uh, Jim J. Brewer, called JBREX. And they operated in the Mocaine and Laverne area of Oklahoma, Texas Panhandle, uh, probably at their peak, maybe operated 300 wells or so. But they were real active in the A&D markets uh, at that time. So he, you know, is kind of the, the advent inter- internet uh, 1.0, you know, uh, Yahoo.com and all that. So he, he decided to start, uh, to start EnergyNet. Uh, to create this liquidity uh, for oil and gas assets instead of, you know, maybe just uh, kind of for sale by owner type things. And it, even that, even at that time, even, you know, energy investment banks were relatively a, a new thing. I mean, Randall and Dewey were, uh, you know, we're a two guy, sh- I mean, we're a five man shop at the time. Um, but, uh, but really, uh, so I, I started in a couple years after the company started, you know, when I started, I think we've sold, we sold, you know, $25 million in assets around that time. Now we've sold about $9 billion in assets. Um, but, uh, was but, it always internet based when it, when it started? Always. Okay. Cause, and, and technically I am Gen X, I am not a boomer, X, but you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Randall and Dewey had started up. You kind of had the, the small shops actually doing property sales. You also had, uh, oil and gas clearinghouse right. doing the, let's rent a ballroom at oh, yeah. the holiday Inn and let's sell properties in a live auction 
And they were, I think, transitioning online probably well, back back at that point. Yeah, and I mean, oil and gas clearinghouse still exists today. But back then, I mean, part of our like really kind of DNA and story is that we were getting our asses kicked and head kicked in by kind of the 800 pound gorilla in the room. They'd been in business, you know, seven, eight years ahead of us. We're holding these, you know, auctions at the hotel ballroom. Uh, no internet at that time, but it was a, you know, you know, there's. $50 million sold in, a, in an auction and they held one every month. And you know, every time their, their brochure came out, it was like a kick in the gut to me. Like, Oh man. Did they, did they pioneer that or they, they just became the best at that kind of format? Well, all right. So the, a little, uh, a brief history of time. So, uh, back in, this is, uh, you know, 86, the oil bust happens all, you know, uh, a financial crisis really, but there was also savings and loans, uh, thrifts. So like 600 and 600 to 700 banks, savings and loan banks failed. And uh, similar to 2008, when they created TARP, uh, the federal US federal government created the RTC, the Resolution Trust Corporation. And the RTC uh, uh, you know, was this big federal organization, but they, they took over all these failed assets, foreclosed on assets. Uh, and they found that a lot of these banks were in oil and gas producing states. Uh, and they found themselves with all these oil and gas at these conveyances. So they approached this company called EBCO, E-B-C-O, and they were actually equipment brokers. That's what the EB store, like oil field salvage equipment brokers. And they, um, uh, the federal government approached them and they said, hey, we got these conveyances. You think you can sell those in an auction? And they said, cha-ching, cha-ching. Yeah, sure we can. And so they did, but they, these were actually essentially auctioneers, no oil and gas experience. Yeah. They were, you know, Bill, my, my boss and mentor and his partners that are still active in the industry were, you know, essentially maxing out their credit cards at these live, at these live EBCO auctions, just like, no due diligence. They'd drive out to the field to see what the actual well was producing, you know, give the pumper a you know, case of beer and get all the information, you know, and, and go buy the deal, you know, a $10,000 deal that was worth $100,000 or, you know, th things like that. It's the Wild Wild West. Yeah, definitely. And then, and then the, so the, my, my version of the history, I'm sure other people have a different version, but, you know, EBCO Clearinghouse kind of came and ran, ran EBCO out of business. Uh, Ken Olive and uh, Ron Barnes and all those guys were like, uh, you know, we're real oil and gas guys, we're landmen, we're engineers, integrity, customer service, we know how to run businesses. So they kind of ran them out of business. And then we started, you know, uh, in 1999, they, they started in 1993. Um, and, uh, and we were doing it all online. So it was again, like, you know, Chuck wasn't, a, uh, is Gen X, not a boomer, but I was selling, Thank you. I was selling, you know, our service, we can go in and, um, you know, through a, you know, a competitive structured process, you know, maximize value for your assets, your oil and gas assets, and we'll, we'll reach more people. You know, you don't have to be at the event. You can do your due diligence online. It's all there. It's a level playing field. But I was selling to people that were my father's age. And yeah. they were like, that's not how we do it, son. The stores, <laughs> you can see the door, see yourself out, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was an uphill battle, but we kind of grinded away. But really in our DNA was, you know. How, it, how it long was done. it? How long was it like that? That it can't be done. Uh, I would say, I mean, seven, eight, ten years. I mean, it felt God. like from I started till maybe 2010, we we kind of took over market share just kind of by begging and pleading and grinding away. But it was always kind of a that's not how we do it, or you know, things like that. And then you know, over time, uh, the decision makers at the EMP companies, the private equity sponsors, or just the owners, were you know had Amazon accounts and online banking and everything else. Yeah. And it made perfect sense to the, you know, the, the people that kind of, kind of grew up in that, that era. So one of the things I kind of saw from that, let's call it perfect storm is you had brokers starting investment banks, starting the online selling. 
And then you actually had private equity starting then too. Yep. You had natural gas partners that started up, NCAP had started up, Quantum had raised their, their first fund. And what happened is somewhere, some, somehow a manager at, let's just pick on Exxon because they're the big guy, sold his buddy a property for 40 million and he worked it for two years, sold it for $200 million and got like a Lamborghini. And the guy at Exxon got pissed you know, oh, yeah, yeah. like this. And so I think you had all those forces come together where Exxon on down said, you have to sell something at an auction. We can't just sell to buddies anymore. And it's really we, not just an auction, but just broad market broad, exposure. Yeah, it yeah. has to be ex fully exposed to the market, competition exactly. from all, all sources. And that's really kind of how we you know, got our, I mean, made a lot of traction with the Chevrons and Exxons and BPs and you know, marathons of the world because you know, it, it checked all those boxes. For, for those guys, uh, they had lots of assets to sell. Um, you know, they were under scrutiny from, from situations like that to make it a, you know, everything on the up and up, no, no funny business, no selling it to your college roommate type stuff, and then going and start getting PE money and starting a business. Uh, so it was, you know, broadly marketed level playing field, you know, everybody's on the, on the, on the, has the same opportunity to buy it. If they, if they qualify, if they're an operator in good standing, if they have the funds. So we verify all the funds, we verify they're an operator in good standing, bonding requirements, all those things. So the, the call it 10 years, the yeah. struggle of yeah. building this, yeah. did you develop a sales pitch that you figured out finally worked? Did old people just retire at these companies and younger people that use Google and Amazon decide, Hey, this makes sense. All of the above. What, or was there an aha moment? Was it no, gradual? It, there, I mean, um, I, I guess I would say it's kind of a, like scoreboard, you know, point to the scoreboard. So it, there became a situation where, you know, among people doing it, it was like a, we built a track record. We had, you know, success stories with companies that were having repeat consistent success you know, exceeding their expectations. Uh, and then with competitors, it kind of got to a point where there's a live auction and there's an online auction. And when it got to a point that it was, you know, most most of the transactions were occurring on our platform, it kind of switched really quick. But up until then, it was, you know, we had a good sales pitch. We had, you know, checked all, thought we checked all our boxes. But then it was like, oh, I'm, I'm good buddies with this. I'll play golf with this guy over here. So, you know, sorry, Chris, but maybe next time. But we just kept grinding away and kind of, you know, never say die attitude and just probably, I mean, really at the time. And when I, when I started with energy net, I was just you know too dumb and poor to realize it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't going to work. I just like figured like I need the money and you know, <laughs> I'm just going gonna to figure this out. Like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe they just don't like me. Maybe I can change myself. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've been listening to Mark Zuckerberg mm -hmm. on Joe Rogan's podcast oh, yeah, yeah. and I, I just got done with it. And one of the things he said that I found really interesting was, because Rogan basically asked the question, hey, when you started Facebook, did you know you were going to take over the whole world? And he said, well, I started it for one college. I thought I might do another college or two. But literally, when I launched the, you know, launched the website, I went out to eat uh, pizza with some buddies. And we were talking about, it's so obvious somebody's going to do this for the world. You know, it's not right. just going to be a college thing. He goes... No idea it would be us. We're sitting there going, Google, Apple, Microsoft right. oh, yeah, have yeah. all these resources to do. And so his point was sometimes something's just so obvious to us. Right. 
that we think everybody else is going to do it. And we look up 10 years later and nobody else did. Right. It almost sounds like that was. And there's really was, no other entrance in the space, right? They come and go. I mean, there are um, and and they do similar things, but they've come and go. And, you know, uh, it, it's a really hard business to start like uh, because it, it does become, you know, am I going to go to the platform that has, you know, 45,000 users or am I going to go to the platform that just started out and is stubbing their toe and figuring things out on, you know, processes and procedures. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of, you know, kind of a, a two, it's a two sided marketplace and it's hard. The, the marketplace problem is that you either have to get inventory to sell or you have to get buyers. So there's stories on two sided marketplaces, like when DoorDash started, I believe in San Francisco, usually start similar. Mark Zuckerberg started Harvard, went out to another school, um, uh, DoorDash started in, um, uh, in San Francisco or kind of that Silicon Valley area. But they didn't have any restaurants, uh, so they would actually go. We had a team of people go and get get menus, scan the menus, and then you'd order like I'd order like uh, you know Buffalo Wild Wings, and they weren't they weren't part of the network. You would just like order it, and they're like, "All right, I will go order it now from them and <laughs> go pick it, it out." Yeah. yeah, and they would go. The DoorDash people would actually go pick it up. So there's a there's a, a, a conundrum. If we like starting a business like ours, you either creating a marketplace is hard because you need buyers and sellers and you, need but it, sell and you have to get them buy. at the same time. Exactly. You get a whole bunch of buyers, but you don't have any inventory. Then they, they, they fade away. Uh, if you have sellers, but you don't have any buyers, they have poor results. So, so it's hard to, it's hard to get going. Uh, it, like the, the idea that was there. So John Lahr is our chief technology officer. He's actually been, he was employee number one uh, at energy net. Bill Britton hired him first. He's a genius brainiac, you know, created the platform itself. But he, he was so frustrating just in the early days. He's like, Chris, this is this is the idea. This is this is how it's going to work. I was like, you don't understand what the people are telling me out there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> They're telling me it's not going to work. <laughs> he's like, oh, it'll work. It'll work. But, you know, just the IT kind of just being all, early, you know, being that's early. all it is. Yeah, man. We're probably, we're actually, in reality, we probably were, you know, six, but six, I mean, I, yeah, I think, it, I think it worked <laughs> out. I mean, so. Let's dive into, you know, NAEP has is, is traditionally been, uh, you know, marketed as the place where, where deals happen. Yeah. I think over the last few years, I've, I know you've probably been for 20 years. I've probably been for the last, I don't know, seven or eight. Um, it, 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 is there really still a market for that, you know? And, and do, I think the question always is from everybody that I talk to and every time that I go is, do deals actually happen at NAEP or do they happen at the Hilton of the America's Bar or the right. Four Seasons right. Bar? And is it just a reason to get away from you know, the wife and the kids for the weekend because all your friends essentially just descend upon right. Houston and you just get to like kind of hang out. You know, the the thesis there is, you know, you've got buyers, you've got sellers, but it is very much an old school kind of like, you know, hey, here's kind of our prospect. And it, maybe it is kind of earlier in the journey to where it's not necessarily, because I don't think you guys are necessarily listing prospects, are you? We're mostly assets. Mostly assets, like yeah. Producing yeah. assets, non-producing exactly. assets, but it's not drilling, so I mean, I it's not I, drilling deals. Yeah, so I guess it is I guess it is kind of like maybe apples and oranges then. I don't know. I'm just kind of curious like your take as to like where that kind of plays. Because we've seen, I'm just going to say, I mean, we've just seen declining attendance and uh, right. declining engagement with NAEP right. over the past couple of years. And this will be actually, this winter NAEP will be the first year in 20 years that we haven't had a big, you know, booth yeah. and exhibition and whatnot, uh, exhibit. Uh, uh, you know, over time it's changed. I think, I think there's always, there, there needs to be a place where we can all congregate like the entire upstream oil and gas, you know, it's North fun. America. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it's I look forward to it. It's yeah. fun. I mean, I think it just, it, it evolved over the years. Uh, and for us, we're, we're kind of taking a, taking a, a seat back. Uh, I think with, you know, at, at some point there were, you know, actual, you know, uh, conventional prospects that were for sale and you, people would walk up, you know, either rich companies, rich people, like I'll take, you know, I'll take a 15% of that deal. I need to, you know, and it was kind of a, a cool way to do it, but with private equity, I mean, private equity guys aren't walking up to somebody's booth and making a deal with them. You know, it, it's a little bit more 
Did you guys ever? <laughs> did you guys ever go to Nate, or was it more just like on the speaking circuit? So what we found this was kind of funny is we would get a booth at Nate, and I would see Chris over at his booth, and I need to go talk to Chris, but somebody's got a man our booth, and then the person that has the offshore prospect uh, off South Africa that you can't even license the prospect, we come into your booth and not leave. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's like, no, I need to go talk to Chris. So it's like almost want- like you need like a, like a bouncer with like a, <laughs> like with a, a rope, you know, the rope. You're like, oh, yeah, you got a good prospect. Come on. My, my team would always, you know, just be doing it so long. And that, that would exactly happen. And like, I, Really, I just kind of wouldn't stand for it. Like I was just like I'm talking to somebody, and I would just like walk away. (laughs) (laughs) So that so what was funny is we morphed to not getting a booth, but we'd show up and we'd walk around because it's yeah. I mean, it's in effect. It's a it's a cocktail party, and uh, I used to do almost the same thing. Is I just wouldn't stop walking, right? Because you could talk to people and they could kind of walk with you, but just don't stop because the second your feet stopped, you were trapped. No, I, I think Nape and the. AAPL and all that goes into it has a lot of value. I don't know if it's, you know, where deals happen. I, I think, I think the conversations there lead to lead to deals happen, lead to yeah. relationships and trust built and all those things. So. Yeah. I've, so, I've always had a good time. Yeah. So, so in the building of, of, um, energy net kind of two questions on it. One, you talked about struggle for 10 years. Did it wind up having a traditional S curve yep. adoption? Okay. That, yeah, that's very, very early adopters, you know, yeah. laggards, all that. Yeah, very and much so. Explosion. Okay, so that's interesting to me. And give me a story from that that we haven't heard that will be surprising to people. Give me your classic entrepreneur, something happened, whatever it is. Um, I'm putting you on the spot. No, I mean, for for us, and uh, maybe not a, a, a completely new uh, story, but it but basically is, uh, but we, you know, in our early days, we, uh, Chevron and Texaco merged and then they had like a two year freeze period on that merger. Uh, and then we went in and competed to sell, uh, and, and make the mineral mineral bros salivate, but we, we competed and, uh, and won a, a divestment mandate to sell 130,000 net mineral acres in 33 different States that Chevron and Texaco only you know, now owned. Uh, but instead of doing it as one package where, uh, you know, nowadays Shishio or Black, Black, Blackstone Minerals or Kimbo or somebody would buy just like, all right, I'll take that. Uh, Chevron, to understand what they had before they sold it and to make sure their geologists blessed it and, you know, operations blessed it and everything. We sold it uh, county by county and sometimes track by track. So uh, it was 2000 transactions. So that's that winning that divestment mandate. Put us on the map because everybody was like, what's Chevron selling? They got stuff in Martin County or they got stuff in East Texas. They got stuff in Wyoming. And it was minerals, non-producing minerals for the most part. Uh, so people were buying it up, competing for it. It was working. It was like moths to the flame for our platform because people sign up, have a username and password. Um, and uh, and then they're hooked for the next deal. And what, it, it what builds on itself. That? This is like uh, 2003 through 2005. Okay. But, but in selling it, Kind of parcel by parcel, uh, I think you know we two x or three x their estimated value from what they would have would have received, and then with the success of that, you know even the people like our champions at Chevron at the time, uh, mostly retired now, but were you know well you got to producing properties have to be sold at different avenue. And we're like oh come on man let us see <laughs> let us sell these non ops let us sell these royalties these overrides so they give us a chance and we executed on that and then it was 
you know, um, well, when operated properties, you can't do operated properties in an online auction format. And we're like, give us a shot on something small. And we executed on that. Uh, and then, you know, before long, we were, we exited Chevron out of Wyoming, sold it to Hillcorp for, I want to say, $100 million. We did a big $100 million deal on the uh, um, uh, Velma water flood in central Oklahoma. You know, now we've done, you know, multiple $100 million individual transactions for them. But it was like a graduation level. And every step along the way, it was like, you can't do that. What's that, the what's the biggest deal you guys have done so far? Uh, about two hundred and twenty five million dollars. Jeez, what kind, of deal, single. what kind of deal was it? This was a, all of a non op transaction. Okay. Yep. So what for? I always joke. My mom is the only person that listens to my podcast. So, and dear sweet mom is one very naive. Two knows nothing about energy. For mom, walk through what the process is like. Sure. It's mom, oil and gas company, wants to sell something and says, hey, Chris, what do I do? Sure. And, and what's interesting about our platform is that we really have a reason to call on or to interact with any person that owns oil and gas assets, whether that's ExxonMobil or BP or Granny Yates. I don't know what you call your mom. Uh, mom. Mimi. Mimi. Mimi, Mimi Yates. Uh, but we have, we have conversations like this with mineral owners. You know, they inherited things all the time. So- we call them, they call us. A lot of times it's for those types of sellers. It's a, it's a referral from their bank or from their lawyer or from someone else that's more engaged in the industry. We don't necessarily uh, uh, target those customers, but we sell for them all the time. Uh, and so we, we talk to them and we say, you know, what we're going to do for your asset is that we're going to create a comprehensive data room with production, with cash flows, with mapping, with how you own it, how you're going to convey it, uh, you know, if there's upside, uh, all those things. Um, and then we're going to, you know, you're going to be able to review the data room, make sure everything is, is, is uh, accurately uh, portrayed. And then, you know, we're going to expose that property and market it to a large universe of prospective buyers. We're going to, op, you know, con we're going to personally contact the area operators surrounding it. We're going to personally contact the, uh, you know, the buyers that have bought similar properties in the past. One of the cool things about our platform is from like an administrative level, you know, Big brothers watching. Like, so when you're logged on, we see, we can see, and there's a record of everything you've ever looked at from instance you had a, had an account. So we know what you bought, what you paid, uh, all the, how much money you have uh, as, a, as a bid allowance. So we can target the next asset based on previous transactions, kind of like a recommender engine type situation. Um, uh, but with that, so it's about a 21 day to say 35 day sale process where we give everybody time to evaluate it, um, you know, uh, 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 make sure, you know, everything lo looks right, get management approval, determine a value. And then there's either a bid window through a, like a transparent bid auction, or there's a seal, it's a sealed bid. So both, both, pro both processes work exactly the same. Either you see, you see other people's bids or you don't. What's the, what's the sealed bid? So the sealed bid, I mean, it's, it's very much the, like, so if today's, uh, September 9th. So if, if, Mimi Yates had the had the property. It would take us about seven to ten days to build the data room. Um, they Mimi Yates approves it. I uh, hope she's listening. Uh, and then uh, uh, and then roughly about a month later, so say uh, October uh, October ninth or ten, uh, bids would be due. So if bids if it's an auction, then there's a seven day window you can bid. And if it's a sealed bid, it's just at four p.m. on October. So there's 9th. so there's no so there's no actually auction component to the sealed bid. It's just hey, I'm just going to submit. Kind of just, it's more like a blind auction, right? Well, it's, it, 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 I mean, it's a form of auction, but it's just, you don't see what the other, you're not bidding, you, you have your best offer. It's not the eBay model. Not the eBay model. What is, gotcha. what, which way is preferred for, or is a, give me some data on what's. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So really it, it kind of comes down to, to value uh, or in, in our estimation. So currently we do about 
2,000 or so transactions a year annually through the you know, transparent bid auction format. And those are typically sub $10 million in value. Okay. We sold one for um, uh, QEP resources uh, back when they were kind of monetizing things. And uh, in the auction process, it sold for $35 million. Uh, and two companies, you know, ran it up. Uh, the, the beauty of the auction format is that everything is defined. Uh, we, we've it, imagine if in the oil and gas industry, um, uh, everybody agreed on a PSA. There mm -hmm. isn't, you know, and that's essentially what we've created for this structure that everybody, you know, everybody agrees on the same PSA. Uh, the seller's outgoing conveyance is the controlling document of the sale. So when you bid, the only or when the process really boils everything down to the price. So everything is predetermined except the price. The effective date is known, you know, environmental liabilities, who's, you know, uh, my watch, your watch, all those things are done. Taxes are done. Um, so, so when the, you know, when the, the, the auction ends and the minimum reserve, the seller's minimum reserve price has been met or exceeded, we invoice the buyer. They have two business days to pay our escrow account. And then we act as closing agent and close the deal. So that's how the auction works. Uh, but there's a, a trigger, a sale trigger price that you have a, you as the seller have the ability to um, set a minimum reserve price. The buyers don't know what that minimum reserve price is. They just know there is one or there's not one or it's been exceeded. Uh, but once the, you know, once it's been exceeded and the auction ends, uh, we, it's a done deal. We invoice the buyer. They have two mm -hmm. business days to pay. We file that there's no, there's no negotiation from that point on. If it doesn't meet the minimum reserve, then we step in and say, you know, Mimi Yates wanted a million dollars for that asset. It only got up to $850,000. You know, Mimi, can we go back to the you know top one, top two, top three bidders and see if we can get a deal done? She said, yeah, you can do that. So we go back and get the best offers we can. Sometimes we exceed it. Sometimes we get closer to the minimum reserve price. Uh, and then we close it at the same fashion. The sealed bid, similar to, um, you know, a typical energy investment bank, uh, you know, bids are due at a certain time. They submit an offer letter with maybe a markup of a PSA or term sheet or, you know, red lines, things like that. And then it's a negotiation back and forth. So we present all that to the seller. Um, they huddle up and say, all right, let's go back to the top three or four, have a pencil sharpening exercise to see, uh, you know, if they can increase their offer potentially, or just, you know, how fast can you close? What needs to happen before you close? So it's a little bit, the sealed bid uh, provides a little bit more flexibility for the seller and for the buyers really just to conduct additional. And those deals. are the larger deals usually? Typically. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of kind of just, I guess, their own interpretation of the value, particularly say like PUDs. Uh, yeah, mainly. And, and th that's another reason. So the auction works really well for PDP assets, royalty assets, kind of straightforward assets yeah. where, you know, if everybody can agree that the PDP PV10 is, you know, $5 million, then it's just who's going to bid, you know, 5.3 or 5.4 or 5.5 kind of around that. But if it's really subjective, uh, it's better to do a, a sealed bid approach uh, because you want to capture the outlier bidders. So, you know, uh, you know, this company may see a lot more value in the upside or what they can do with it than somebody else. So you want to, you know, kind of you're, you're hoping for and it is really a bell curve. And we see that again and again where, you know, there's you know, we, we did one deal and it was a 80 million dollar deal. We had, I think, 25 offers and 15 of the offers were between uh, 35 million and 45 million, but three were, you know, 75 to $80 million. So, so it's like the consensus is here, but the consensus doesn't win the deal. Yeah. I mean, you can say that, that, that asset is worth X, but that that's, I mean, it's uh, like, it's like if I had a jar of pennies here, a jar of coins and the, you play the game, how much is in there? Like 
it's it's one thing to guess how many coins are in there, but whoever just pays the most and wins in a in a, in a competitive sale process. Yeah. Well, you know, you know the 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 thing I think that's the best pitch for you guys is at Kane when we would go out and sell a property for the longest time we'd say, okay, everybody, write down who's going to buy it and how much somebody's going to pay, put it in a sealed envelope, and we'd open it at the end of yeah. the deal. And we were never right. Right. I yeah. mean, the only time we got right was James Broach said that Lynn would wind up buying Stallion. He was way off yeah. on the number. And we were like, no way. They just bought Black Sands from us. There's no way. They don't have the capability of doing that. That's the Yeah, I remember time. that deal. Paul and King at Stallion. I Paul King and George Sanfilippo. Yeah. But the key was... And, and that's why we were always like, you got to make sure everybody sees it because you just don't know. You don't yep. know what happens in the boardroom two weeks before the, right. the information goes out, you know, right. and so everybody mm -hmm. needs to see it. Yeah. I mean, um, there's there's different schools of thought and it's, I mean, like we are ingrained and, you know, um, in that a competitive sale process consistently work, consistently deliver the best outcome. I mean, um, we, we occasionally do private sales, targeted sales. Uh, but when sellers ask us to do that, it's kind of like, you know, all right, handcuff me, handcuff my feet to my my hands, and now let me try to do this deal for you. I mean, we, we want to just... Oh, uh, trust me. I sat down with sellers all the time. <laughs> Man, you know, if you give me a little exclusive, I can work it harder, oh, get yeah, you a yeah. higher number. You know, I'd buy the drinks all the time. And it was never true. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> so I, right. Like, I mean... Just I, stop. I want to put something in front of you that you're going to, you know, you're going to have to say no to. Yeah. But, but there is, I mean, there is a spectrum and it's, I mean, it's, it's who it's, it's where you sit on the spectrum uh, of, of a buyer or a seller. Like a seller wants, you know, a buyer wants to get the best deal possible. And that usually means submitting an offer, an unsolicited offer. And the seller accepts that for whatever reason. And that's what a lot of companies do. That's, uh, that's the mineral ground game. Companies do that all the time, lobbying and offers on your adjacent fields and whatnot. But the reason that they're submitting an unsolicited offer to you is probably because they know something you don't or they think they can. I mean, it's not because they want to pay you the most. But then from a seller's perspective, you know, uh, you want to get the most value. You want to see, you know, if you can get Oxy to bid or if you can get, you know, Diamondback to bid. Or if you can get a private equity company that just got new, mo new money or they're running out, you know, their commitment's running out, you, you want them to bid. Uh, and just see, it gives you options as a seller. Um um, so, I mean, I always joke, you know, um, on the, on the unsolicited offers, if I can, you know, if I can go into a bar, you know, a nightclub and I'm the only guy there and it's just filled with beautiful women. Yeah. I love that. But that's not how the world works. I could screw that up. <laughs> <laughs> I, that. I can screw it up. Been too, there, but. done that. I can mess that up with the best of them. I mean, has there ever been that temptation of like, Hey, we have access to the best deals that like we start accumulating like our own assets. Maybe it starts off in the early days of like, we're just trying to get this thing going. We're just going to take some overrides and then that kind of balloons and you're like, Oh shit. Like we've got a pretty good thing going here. Uh, it was it was definitely discussed and and uh, uh, to uh, to Bill Britton's credit and the leaders at the at the time we just said we're never going to compete with our buyers or our sellers we're never yeah. going to be perceived that way uh, so we don't one. we have never bought any deal that's been listed or even brought to us you know and, and sometimes we you know see I mean it is like part of our pitch and like I have friends you know just that you know, uh, Atherton you know hook me up on a deal that like you know it's coming to market and you know uh, you know sell it to me instead. Kind of the same same situation, but oh, I've tried that with you. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it, even in my, you know, Chuck was asking like what our pitch is, but our pitch is, you know, usually the first words out of my mouth is that we're gonna we're gonna create a competitive process. We're gonna you know put this asset in its best light. We're gonna get a lot of people to to bid on it and exposure and competition, and uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna run through walls to make sure the right people are looking at it and the right people are bidding the most. 
But then after I say that, they can't say, well, now I want half my, half the value I really wanted. So, I mean, there's, there's not many, uh, I guess, just in my, in our conversations with potential sellers, there's not many deals to be had, I guess, that are, are steals. Yeah. So, so do this. Two or three trends today in the market. What are you seeing out there kind of in, uh, in deal land? I want to talk that for just a yeah, second. Sure. And I'm going to go ahead and say this just so you'll have some time to think while you're uh, okay. talking. That is, then I'm going to ask you, what are two or three trends we're going to see over the next five years? Okay. So yeah. what's going on today? And then we'll talk tomorrow. You know, it, it's interesting. And, and you, you experienced this in private equity world that, you know, there was a time where it was a traffic jam of, you know, kind of 2018, 2019, 2020, uh, where uh, private equity companies were essentially built to sell. You're building a product to sell, hopefully to a publicly traded company. But there was a traffic jam where the publics weren't buying. Like it, there was, it was, it was, uh, you know, uh, salad days when they when they were. But when they stopped, you know, people were like, "Do I have to drill my returns now? Like, what what's you know, is my my three to five year exit going to be eight to ten years?" So that occurred, uh, and we went through that and got through that. But now, you know, uh, I think a lot of the large publicly traded companies are just publicly traded companies in general, EMP companies are, are seriously looking at their inventory and seeing how much they have left. And that, that trend starting to begin again. So we're seeing that in terms of publicly traded companies significantly paying for upside for acreage, or maybe they weren't a while ago. Um, so that, that, that's kind of one trend that we're seeing. And we think that will continue where, you know, the, uh, the inventives and the, the pioneers of the world are going to be on the hunt, uh, more macro to, to, you know, to our world is just that, you need to get big quick. And we see companies like Silverbow, companies like Earthstone doing that, uh, you know, Continental's on a, on a run, Devon's on a run. Uh, you know, I think we'll continue to see bigger companies get even bigger. Um, I would say that another trend that we see that we interact, because we, you know, there's, there's, you know, acreage deals that are more exploratory development, shale deals. There's PDP deals. There's a different buyer segment for just heavy PDP deals. A, a typical publicly traded company does not want for the most part, to buy just a PDP deal that doesn't help them. They need to buy inventory that they can use their expertise to uh, to exploit and extract value from. There are buyers that have different investment parameters. Um, it, like the, you know, I, I consider the, you know, the Diamondbacks and the pioneers of the world, you know, the Game of Thrones. And then there's the Merit Energies and Scout Energy and Foundation that are more of law and order, you know, CSI. It's very form <laughs> formulaic where, you know, we're going to get this asset. We're going to give it some TLC. We're going to do some workovers. We're going to reduce OPEX. We're going to increase production, but not, you know, we're not going to turn, you know, zero into, you know, into, you know, 10,000, 30,000 barrels over, you know, over a couple of years. They're going to you know, incrementally grow that. So there's the PDP side. Uh, of the you know operations development drilling, but then also over here there's the royalty side and the non-operated working side. So uh, the the royalty uh, business, and, and you guys know with you know uh, Carbon Secchi and you know Kimball and uh, all these all these uh, mineral and royalty companies, a very dynamic market. It's a very large market. It's very fragmented. But the royalty and mineral market, I mean, you have to um, you know each each there are a lot of small deals, and it's like I, I equate it to you know um, you know if you can do a royalty and mineral deals. You usually have to make a deal with the the owner of the asset. And it's like trying to cut your front lawn with a pair of scissors. I mean, you have to do like yeah. one, de one deal at a time, yeah. one deal at a time, one deal because you have to, you know, have a, have an agreement. Uh, but then the non-op side, I think partly because the mineral and royalty side has gotten so institutionalized and so, you know, developed and, you know, it used to be on the minerals and royalty side that it was, you know, I'll pay you, 
90 months cash flow for that or 60 months cash flow for that. But now it's basically operating teams that are looking at the development plan. So they're treating all these assets like they're, you know, like they operate them and how they would value them. Uh, because that's gotten so uh, mature and, and uh, institutionalized finance, uh, it's kind of uh, spread over into the non-operated working manager side. So that's a, that's kind of an interesting dynamic as of late, just uh, for the past two or three years, where there's a huge market for uh, buying uh, outside operated non-op AFEs. So a company like Devon, for example, you know, all of their vast holdings and uh, and uh, operations and acreage all over the place, they get outside operated AFEs coming in like the mail. It never stops. I mean, there's 20, 40, 50 a week. Uh, and they have to decide, are they going to participate or not? So there's a, a vast market right now of people saying, I'll step in your shoes. You don't you don't want to drill that well in Wyoming in the Powder River Basin, or you don't want to drill this well, like I'll step in your shoes. I'll pay you a premium on top of what the AFE costs to do that. That's been a faci- fascinating development, that yeah. Wellbore Wednesdays, yeah, right? Because, yeah. you know, your oxy, and it, it's like you have this amount of budget. Well, of course, you're going to spend the budget on what you operate. Right. The stuff you don't want to operate, even if it's operated by Shell or EOG, some other good right. operator, you don't want to do it. So they're literally giving those away. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's, it's developed into a market. We're actually starting a, you know, like this, I'm saying it out loud, but we have a portal on EnergyNet that's specifically for that. Oh, cool. So just to create more liquidity for those non-op AFEs, you know, some companies like uh, Conoco, Concho with Wellbore Wednesdays, it's very streamlined, very, but still a lot of time and effort. You're going back and forth on all these negotiations. So we're going to work to do a lot of heavy lifting for maybe some of the companies that don't have a process in place, or it's kind of your hair's on fire. You have to consent by, you know, today at five o'clock to get the deal done or it just goes away. Uh, so we have our, our EnergyNet non-op AFE divestment portal uh, that's live and we're doing deals. I think we've done a hundred or so transactions thus far, uh, but it's kind of in, in beta right now. It's just really launching. Uh, but you know, when that, when I first saw that happening, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I was, who's going to buy like on the other end, like the people that are doing that, that are buying well bore only, uh, non-operated working interest, but then they have a portfolio of a hundred non-op, you know, well bore. There's no upside to it anymore. I mean, it, it's just a cash flow stream for cash flow. Uh, but now, you know, we, we did a, a transaction uh, October of last year for $154 million that was all, you know, 434, 36 wells in the Bakken, you know, multiple operators, but wellbore only. And, you know, lots of buyers for it, a dozen or so, 14, 14 different uh, bidders, and it was sold to Northern Oil and Gas. But there are, there's an end, end case for that. And now with Northern being a public, or Northern's always been a non-op publicly traded company, but now you have uh, um, the Gray Rock team. Very, uh, now they're publicly traded non-op. Uh, Riza Energy uh, is secure is buying these and securitizing them on the other end. So it's very you know becoming a very dynamic market. That's it. okay. So now we're doing this podcast in let's say four years, and we're talking about the big trends. What are those things we're talking about that we're going to be talking about in f- three or where's, four years? Where's the puck going? Yeah, exactly. Um, in that, I think there is like a, like a, some of it has to do with these asset transactions, but I, I think there's a, a push towards making oil and gas as an investment, you know, as an uh, investment class into more of a security, like being able to, like right now you have to, you know, you buy a $200,000 asset, you have the conveyance, it's filed in the county, you know, you own it, you can sell it. Uh, but it is an asset class like real estate, uh, you know, uh, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, things like that. 
Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in five years somebody kind of cracks the code in terms of how you could turn it into, you know, more of a, you know, your, uh, you know, Edwards Jones broker calls you and says, you want to buy some, you know, uh, salesforce.com stock today, or do you want to buy like $100,000 of West Texas minerals? And it's just very, very similar to that. I could, I could see that. And it, that, that opens up, you know, a lot of different things just in capital to the market, things like that. Yeah. What about any chance? Cause this makes so much sense, which is why it won't happen. All title in America done on blockchain. Um, no more going to the courthouse trying to figure out. Yeah, a lot of people are trying Bob to figure lives. that out. Too. Yeah, that, that, that's yeah. We, we killed a lot of brain cells about that a few years ago. I don't know if you know that. Like a lot of brain cells, probably like eight or nine months deep, deep into it. Here's I'll just I'm just gonna tell people how to do it because if somebody does it, it's a massive undertaking. The way you do it is you you literally you take the Uber model and you use the gig economy and you use existing landmen to go out there and you use bounties. Right. Use oh, bounties, yeah. use okay. bounties for a certain amount of data. They go out there with the apps, be able to go out and structure all of this information, put it all on the blockchain. Once it's on there, it's on there. Because if you as a, like a private company, imagine you try to go out there and go to every single fucking courthouse and structure this entire thing and do all the title yourself. It'll never fucking work. Right. But if you use the gig economy, yeah, I agree it will work. And there are companies, uh, especially mm -hmm. in the Permian Basin that I won't name names, but I know I, I think I know of like three or four that. I've just been doing buying royalties and minerals in the Permian Basin for so long that they they themselves basically have title run, you know, from the beginning of time till today on just about every county, just because yeah. they've been doing it for 30 or 40 years. I think the big I think the biggest barrier there is the brokers. Yep. Yeah. Because you're um, essentially, but they're gone. There, there was a company I don't I don't know if they uh, well it's a company called Run Title, but I remember that they're, they're, the way they explained it to me it was like if you have the book Moby Dick, you know. It would be like I, I hand out copies to all three of us and we just write the whole book again and another another sheet of paper. And then when something else happens, we just add another little paragraph. Yeah. But that's how you run. I mean, that's how titles run. That's blockchain. Yeah. It's but, blockchain yeah. and it's title. Yeah. 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 But yeah, uh, it's, it's just crazy to think that you run title every single time there's a new transaction. It's just so much. It's so redundant and it's so wasteful. I haven't spent enough time thinking about the economics for the county. And when you think economics of the county, you got to think social good of jobs, of people right. working in the county, in the title offices, too. Because it just it would make sense to me if I'm the county judge of some place. It's like, man, we're just going to we're going to, in effect, give all our title information to blockchain. And that way we never have to mess with it again. Some company that would, do oh, yeah. it, in effect, outsource it. And the company might even pay you. Oh yeah, to, for the to, opportunity, to, yeah, to to do that. But I guess you wind up putting people out of work in the county. The, the question is, like, is that is that uh, would that blockchain be owned by a company, or would that be something that would be totally yeah. just open source and utilized by everybody? And I think I don't know what the right answer is, but I think that that answer would dictate whether you get mass adoption or not. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, closed that, that, systems have a tendency to look really good on financial forecasts, but never seem to work out that well. Right, but in the in the kind of gig economy, what you're talking about with each person, you know, adding their own, you know, their own piece to it, uh, and it being kind of a collective, you know, open source that they can all benefit from. Uh, that, that makes a lot, yeah. a lot of sense if you could if you could uh, convince them all to do it. I think it worked. So what's the so we've gone macro? What's going on now? We've gone macro in a few years. Five years from now, what's energy net doing? So what do you look like? Um, you know, we, we've had a kind of with the S curve, we've had a continued growth. So our areas of focus, you know, we we spent the, kind of the 
the last couple of minutes talking about kind of our auction business. That, that was our primary business and it, it kind of provided a foundation. Uh, with that, we've uh, created EnergyNet Indigo, which is our version of, uh, you know, uh, energy investment bank or boutique advisory firm. So we've done, you know, in the past five years, uh, maybe 150, 160 deals between say $15 million in value and $225 million in value. More traditional, you know, here's a, a, a you know, a six week data room. Here's a executive presentation, technical presentation. So we have Keith Reese who leads our technical team, uh, Jonathan Kalkin, Riley Blyton, uh, uh, Cameron Cooper uh, and, and Keta Sinha that are running our technical team and building the you know the upside story and the narrative. So we're winning and, and closing on higher value deals. So that that's one area that we're focused. And it kind of I mean we're we're not an investment bank uh, and, and never will be, but but it it marries kind of the transaction experience, all this knowledge of all these all the sawdust that's created from all these transactions. Who bid? Who didn't bid? Who's going to bid on the next one? What did this guy bid? You know, like all that kind of user data, buyer data, and then data on the assets. It marries all that transaction data and user data with, you know, the the horsepower of a, a really strong technical team that can explain the upside, explain the narrative, the story. When I throw you the keys, yeah. uh, you know, here's how you're going to, you know, you know, drill these, you know, uh, four different benches and in what order and how you're going to unlock value and what the value is of that, of doing that. And then that's why you pay the highest price for it. That's kind of a no brainer because think about like all the, the data that you guys have is such a major asset from all the experience, which gives you a significant amount of horsepower to be able to pull off those deals. I just think if you like, if, if, if I was in somebody's shoes and I was looking at that, comparing it to say a traditional investment bank. I mean, you guys have been doing this for 20 years. You have so much information about how to be successful in this space. It's and just and it's, it's it's like within like, I mean, just the, the investment bank model, it works. They're good. I don't they're, they're great banks out there and great people that work at those and very uh, intelligent, uh, skilled ex experts in, in that realm. Uh, but there are, there are times where it's like, this particular group hasn't done a deal in the Eagleford or the gassy part of the Austin chalk or whatever in a year or two years where we may have done 50 transactions. They may not yeah. have all been billion dollar, you know, transactions, but they were, they were sizable. And we, we talked to buyers, interacted with them and found pain points or reasons they were buying or things like that. So I think that gives us an advantage. Um, and just, you know, we're, we're continuing to, um, to get better and better. It's kind of like the, the graduation story with, with Chevron, where, you know, just applying that to more broad, you know, uh, uh, EMP companies and, and, and well, users. Well, do you, do you marry, I'm thinking about this, do you marry the two of them? Meaning my frustration as a seller through the years was the allocation schedule where you look down and there's zero for like 25% of the properties. And you go back to the to the buyer and you're like, well, we'll keep this, we'll keep this. And it blows up the whole deal. Right. So you're always just like, ah, screw it. That was the high bid. Take it and and let's let's move on. I mean, are there is there a world where me as the seller walks in and you go, hey, Indigo's gonna do this, we're gonna run this through Internet? Yeah, we, we we are we we do that. Uh, and it's not, I mean, it's you know, they're kind of side by side. So we'll say I guess a lot of times if it's a geographically scattered package, we may have like the, you know, the $90 million portion over here. And then there may be a $10 million portion that we run as, you know, 25 auction transactions just to maximize value for each component piece. Uh, we like, like for, for us, at least we think that the sum of the parts is typically greater than the whole. And if we can allow the seller to, to do that and we can say, here's, you know, 25, you know, 20, uh, $500,000 individual deals. And then here's the $90 million package over here. And we can run 
Here's my so operated by others. Operated that, by yeah, others. Here my wellbore straight. Oh, okay, that's cool. And it just allows, you know, some, some buyers, you know, don't have the pocketbook to do a hundred million dollar deal. Some buyers, you know, want to buy the assets in their backyard or that they've been having an eye on for a while. Uh, but they don't, you know, they don't have the capability or they don't want to take on all this stuff. So uh, we, we do it, we do it both ways. So sometimes it'll be, you know, we'll break it up. We'll say, this is the best way to maximize value and to get everything sold. Uh, sometimes it's the other way and the seller just says, get rid of it. I want it all gone. But then we talk to the buyer and we say, Hey, all right, you know, this deal and this deal and this deal after you buy it could potentially be worth, you know, so if you buy it at X, you could potentially come back to the market in a year or six months and sell these assets for these values. because so we have all that data at our fingertips. Is there ever like the, I mean, I don't know if you guys have thought about this or if it's not possible, I'm just kind of just shooting from the hip here, but imagine as a buyer comes in and is looking for, uh, you know, whatever asset, say it's, um, you know, million dollars, right? Have you guys thought about like baking in kind of like financing options? I'm thinking like from the personal finance side, right? If you want to go get like a, you know, a personal loan, you, know, you put in all of your information, you get spicked back a bunch of quotes, right? And that could be based on, yeah. No, no, I think it's a great idea. We haven't cracked the code on how to do that. We're, we're trying to think about it. Right now, a lot of um, individual buyers uh, will use their, you know, their personal wealth or, you know, yeah, it's called private wealth, private wealth accounts. So they'll have, yeah. you know, if they have, Borrow against public stock, basically. Borrow against, yeah. yes. Yeah. So they have, a, they, they, have a, they have an account. Those are cheap loans. They are. Yeah. And they have, so what they'll do is just, you know, they have an account with Amogee or JP Morgan or whoever is their private wealth manager, and they maybe have, you know, $3 million in stock or whatever, but they can get a loan uh, based off that. But we are trying to move towards kind of a staple financing, microfinancing that's just like, here are a term sheet. And if you would like to like to use that, you can. Uh, uh, but we haven't, we haven't cracked the code yet. I just think it'd be interesting. I mean, imagine if somebody, uh, I'm just thinking about like bootstrapped entrepreneurs that don't come from money, that don't have assets because I've been that person for 10 years, essentially. Right. And we went out and bought some, bought some wells and just did them off market. Um, you know, ended up paying cash for those, but yeah, I mean, if you were able to essentially say, especially if you're going out and buying PDP and it's, you know, shooting off cash flow, I mean, could you essentially say, I'm going to buy this and then I'm guaranteed like, Securitize the asset that you're you're essentially buying, and then have that cash flow come off and pay the note, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. We're trying to figure that out, so may may, may tap you to help with that. I think I think it's a, it's a huge <laughs> opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm genius. I mean, the, the other the other area for EnergyNet now and then, so I, I haven't mentioned it thus far, and but uh, you know we we have this user base. Are we breaking news? No, 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 uh, no. Okay, no, All but right. uh, we, yeah, you know, we we have that we have this um um you know platform user base, you know, 45,000 registered sell, you know, buyers with EnergyNet user IDs and passwords, you know, all these oil and gas transactions that have been done. And then uh, EnergyNet Indigo for the higher value deals, the more complex deals with upside. And we have the technical team that showcases that. But we also have the third leg of the company is, is our government resources business. So we, EnergyNet, the platform facilitates the lease sales for Texas University lands, uh, Texas GLO, the federal, uh, you know, Bureau of Land Management, uh, you know, about, I think we're at 16 or 17 different agencies. So we run their oil and gas lease sales. So it's, you know, we, we augment, you know, it's a, it's a legal description. It's here's 640 acres. Here's the terms. There's no negotiation because it's done by the state or the federal government. And then we run a competitive process to see who's going to pay the most. Uh, but with that, uh, and that's been very successful. So in 20 September of 2018, uh, the, the, the salad days, of the oil and gas business, we ran the Bureau of Land Management New Mexico lease sale in the state line area of Lee and Eddy. 
uh, and it sold for, you know, a billion, a, a billion two in a day. And, you know, people were buying, you know, uh, 90,000, $60,000 per acre. Two sections were going for 12, 1,280 acres were going for $100 million. Yeah, you guys crushed that. But it was getting all of the, you know, the the Chevrons to compete with the Ameridevs, to compete with the, you know, WPXs at the time and Franklin Mountain and, you know, Matador. And, uh, but it just, it shows that, you know, it, it, it can be done. So that was, that was, that was a big win for us, big win for us federal government. Um, uh, and the companies, the companies have done really, I mean, that, that's yeah. still, that that's still the, probably the hottest area in the country, uh, with the success we've had, uh, with these government agencies and, and they're very difficult to get into. Um, you know, it's bureaucratic things start and stop, um, lots of rules and regulations involved, but because we've had success, we've said, Hey, you got this uh, real estate over here you're, you're, you own. And instead of, you know, running your own process or putting out a feeler, let us run a process for the real estate. So, uh, yes, uh, I believe it was last year, no, or earlier this year. Uh, so the Western states uh, of the United States, uh, most of, or there's a huge swath, I think 43% of the land is federally owned. So the city of Las Vegas, uh, Henderson County, um, was, was, was the county of Las Vegas? I can't remember, but uh, uh, um, Henderson's is, uh, is I'm a city. I'm blanking too, but the yeah. city of the city of Las Vegas is essentially surrounded by is it Fe- Clark County, Clark County, Clark County, Clark County, Nevada. But it's surrounded. I had to play like I didn't know that for uh, a while, you know, like yeah, Clark, Clark Griswold. Clark, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, but surrounding the city and the county is basically this federal land. It's desert. But as the city has expanded, or Reno, or you know, Las Vegas has expanded, you know that that surface acreage becomes valuable for developers. So we ran a, a competitive sale process for the surface land and had all these homeowners bidding on tracts of land and sold $180 million of, of real estate. Oh, wow. So these, all these uh, government agencies that we're working for have solar rights, wind rights, lithium, carbon capture type stuff that we're trying to help. You know, They don't necessarily know what it's worth, but they know that they need to run a competitive process to, to, uh, to get the most, most value for it. So we're that's, helping them do that. So that, that's kind of the, the tip of the spear for us. Oh, that's really cool. The university lands, you know, the University of Texas owns two thirds of it, and A and M and Port owns, Texas Tech, They're yeah, like, Port Texas, but A and M owns one third. What does that tell us? A and M got to choose first. That's like my, <laughs> that's, like my uh, that's like my favorite joke. But uh, right. So, Chris, who do you want phone calls from, and of those people you want reaching out to you, how do they reach you? Oh, yeah. Website. Um, I'm assuming you want anyone that ever wants to buy, you want them registering, anyone that wants to sell. Certainly. Walk uh, walk us through how people get in touch. uh, Certainly. I'm pretty accessible. Um, I mean, uh, phone numbers on the web. My phone, my cell phone's on the website. Email address is, uh, you know, chris at energynet.com on LinkedIn, on Twitter. but uh, and we, we have our our, our uh, team of professionals at EnergyNet. We're we're real connected. Everybody's really involved in the industry and a participant kind of in the community of it. You know, I'm involved in the Houston Producers Forum, involved in IPAA. Uh, Ethan House is involved in the Petroleum Alliance of Oklahoma, Petroleum Alliance uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, but we're involved in all these you know SPE things like that that we just try to stay active and in, in, uh, involved. So Dina Arias, Cody Felton, Lindsey Ballard. You're out. We have offices in Midland. Oklahoma City, Denver, uh, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Amarillo as well, obviously. Ah, very cool. Yeah, very yeah. cool. The uh, 
I uh, actually stopped in at the at the ranch and tried to eat the steak. Oh yeah, last, last summer. <laughs> oh yeah, I it saw did, that. I saw it, that. It did not end well, but uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a it was a lot of fun I to do. I, I next remember, time you go to the next time you go to the home office in Amarillo, let me let me go because I want to try again. Yeah, no, I, I think the key because I've I've had friends. I've never done it, but uh, I've had friends like live stream it. But I think the key is that you you just you, you video it, but then you don't post anything if you don't if you don't you know if you don't actually do it. If you don't yeah, not me, not me. I. I, I announced that I was going to go do it. And of course that, that didn't end well. So before we wrap up, I got one cool story. I think I mentioned to you, but I just want to just talk about it on the air. So we had for our zero event, uh, we had Marcella Burt come in and she was one of our, one of our panelists on one of the content. And we were sitting down before and she was like, I got to tell you, I've been listening to the podcast since day one. She was like, and I, you know, I heard guys like, you know, uh, David Rams in the mm-hmm. early days and Seth Blackwell and a bunch of the early like EP guys that came on and would tell their story. She's like, I was just so inspired. And she's like, I got on Internet, made an account and her and her husband started just piecing together dot op positions. Nice. And now they've got, you know, I think positions in like 40, 50 different wells. Oh, wow. That's and great. I thought that was a really, really cool yeah. success story that, you know, just from, from, from hearing the stories of the community and then using, you know, such yeah. a powerful platform that you guys have done and they've built up you know, essentially a really strong annuity, right? Yeah, no, yeah, that's a, a lot of people do. And like, the, just, that's great. I need to get her uh, name and address and send her some, some swag. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Marcel, this is me calling you out. Come on the podcast. I want to know the, I want to know the deep, the deep story, but Chris, man, this was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, no, thanks and for having me. I'm really excited. What you guys are doing is, is fantastic. Uh, I like how the, the energy that you guys are bringing to the industry. It, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I just making it. oil and gas fun again, man. Yeah, that's no, it. definitely. I'm, I'm here in my, in my shorts. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Chris, thanks for coming on. This was cool. Yeah, thank you, Chuck. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Cut, 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 cut.